the Application Security Podcast. Here we go. Hi folks, Chris here. Robert and I are joined by Mike Landeck. Mike is a cybersecurity evangelist, AppSec junkie, and Docker security geek, and can be found on Twitter at Mike Landeck. We interviewed Mike in person at the ISC Squared Security Congress event in Orlando, Florida. We discussed his latest talk on breach fatigue, the need to reach outside the echo chamber of security, Twitter as a news source for security, secure coding, and a bunch of other things. Please enjoy and search for something that you can apply directly from this podcast into your day-to-day life. Hi, this is Robert Hurlbut, and I'm here with Chris Romeo, and we're at the ISC Squared Security Congress in Orlando, Florida. And today we're going to be talking with Mike Landek, who is a cybersecurity strategist at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Welcome, Mike. Hi, thanks. I'm here. I'm Mike Landek. Um, I'm here by myself. I, today I'm not speaking on behalf of Hewlett Packard Enterprise, so my views don't necessarily match Hewlett Packard Enterprises. So I need to get that disclaimer in. Absolutely. Thank you. And just to begin, like we uh, asked several of our, uh, our folks that we've been interviewing and talking to, uh, give us your what we call our superhero origin story. Everybody's got uh, a story to tell about how they got into security. What's yours? I got a, got a good one. About 20 years ago, back in the beginning of the dot-com boom, I was a web development manager. So I managed a web team, and we were... Back then, we were like rock stars because no one could do it. And Microsoft had the realization that if applications weren't secure, people wouldn't be using their products. So they had this big initiative where they took their partners. I was a Microsoft partner, took us to Microsoft's campus for a security talk. And, I, and back then, none of us had heard of security to care about security. It was irrelevant to us. So my Microsoft's campus, and they introduced the speaker, and it was this kid who probably was about 17, dressed, his hair was dyed black, he was wearing black eyeshadow, black shirt, black socks, black fingernails, all dressed in black, and Microsoft's campus came out and said, Microsoft sucks, right on campus, and Microsoft didn't kick him out, and they had, I'll never forget it, they had three screens, they had the original Internet Explorer, they had the old SQL Server 5 management console, and they had the File Explorer with the C-Rate open. And this kid says, who here thinks he writes secure web applications? And we all raised our hands. And within five minutes, using only the browser, he'd essentially shared out the C drive and gave himself admin access to the database in minutes. And back then, there was no hacking. There was no Mr. Robot on TV. It was new to us. And we all just sank. I mean, people ran into the hallways calling their sysadmins. And afterwards, I went to him and said, you got to tell me how I could have prevented that because you could have done to me. And I ended up having a correspondence with him where he essentially didn't teach me how to hack. He essentially taught me how to prevent hacking. So I really was probably one of the first people doing web application security defense. I became a security evangelist at that point. And that was probably about 20 years ago. And I've been educating people on cybersecurity mitigations ever since. Okay, great. So you've been working with developers and helping them uh, understand more and more about security over the years than it sounds like. Uh, yeah, most of the work I do is in the application security area, mm-hmm. where I do a lot of work helping. I do a lot of education on secure coding and software security assurance. Like 
my passion is software testing. How do we do security testing on software? Okay, great. So can you say who this, this unnamed person is, or is this a forever anonymous source? It, it was a young man 20 years ago. I would love to know who he is because I owe my career to him because it was really a true aha moment. But it was uh, the Microsoft campus 20 years ago. Hmm. I'm not sure they ever actually introduced him. I had an email address from him that, from a... Hush mail or something. <laughs> not quite. You know, back then, there was a lot of fly-by-night ISPs, and it's... It's long gone, but I would love to know who it was now hmm. because I really owe my career to him. From it was a, you know, those scared straight shows on TV where they send kids to prison. <laughs> this was a scared scared straight where they sent web guys to a hacker. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's great. Well, tell us a little bit about your talk. We're, you're here at IC Square talking about uh, application security. Tell us so, about yeah. So um, I have this theory I call breach fatigue, and that we see even as cybersecurity professionals. We see, we see breaches on TV and the news literally every day. Every day, if you read the news closely enough, there's a different breach, and we've gotten, we've gotten numb to it. And so what, what do you mean by breach? Some kind of data theft, some kind of data loss. I don't, I'm not including um, DOS attacks. This is really, truly an exfiltration of data. But at least daily, somebody's losing some data, and, and we, we become numb to it. We, we become numb. We don't read it. It doesn't make the news. And the sad part of that is it's, it's very rarely is this because the organization did everything perfectly and the bad guys just had some zero data. That does happen on occasion. But more often than not, there were multiple cascading control failures that allowed the attacker to exfiltrate the data. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look at the major breaches, the mitigations are pretty simple. If you come to my talk, you'll hear me say frequently, it would have just been a few lines of code to fix that. So what I'm doing is I'm walking through some of the more famous breaches in the Panama paper breach. We had, um, it was 11.5 million records exfiltrated. Uh, 140 politicians were shown to have some kind of offshore banking activity. You know, it's the biggest data leak in, our, in history. Didn't make much in the news. And if you ask people what, what the root cause was, people aren't even sure. And the root cause really was SQL injection which was originally found and mitigated in 1999. So the biggest data leak in history happened 17 years after there was a mitigation for the vulnerability. So, you know, the, um, the Alibaba um, breach, um, you know, the 21 million user records were exfiltrated due to a brute force attack. You know, brute force has been around since the invention of computing. So ever since there's even passwords, there's been brute force attacks. And I have some things that are less common. Um, the QR codes, for example, there's a lot, you know, QR codes are a way to market to Gen X and Gen Y. And there's, it doesn't make the news, but there's been a lot of QRL jacking and people just flat out putting stickers on top of the QR codes. So I'm doing some demonstrations with that. Okay, great. So in terms of like what you mentioned about the, the Panama Papers and SQL injection, we've, we've talked before about OWASP a little bit, uh, the top 10. That's still number one. Still number one. And, it, and it's funny. I, I, my talk, the goal of my talk isn't to get them to learn, to get them to walk away knowing how to mitigate SQL injection. The goal of my talk literally is to get them to go home and read OWASP SQL injection cheat sheet. Mm-hmm. I've got the link right. Every, every, pretty much every mitigation I'm showing ends with pointing them to the OWASP cheat sheet on how to mitigate that. Okay. Very good. And are you getting some, some good questions from attendees about that uh, in terms of what do I do? How do I, what am I looking for? It's, it's, it's nice the awareness is working because most people in the audience aren't software developers. They're people right. that you know, there's a lot of auditors here, a lot of oversight people, and they're really excited about how to go educate the developers. So that's a 
a different story that the software developer's job, typically they make their, they get their goodies by writing the most lines of code per hour with the fewest defects. And what happens is I've never in my, in my career seen a software requirement that simply says the hackers can't get in. We, we give, we end up taking software developers and giving them a hundred pages of security requirements. We don't explain them and they're really hard to understand, but we don't give them any frameworks, we don't give them cheat sheets and the blanket please make it so hackers can't get in, doesn't usually appear there. So if my goal is, if you take, uh, when I work with software developers, they really care about security a lot, but they're actually disincented sometimes. Sometimes there's so much pressure to write code fast, they're being pushed into Agile. Agile can be very secure, but if you don't build security into Agile, you're going to get exactly what you're asking for. You're going to get a very fast release cycle that bypasses security. So it, um it's out of the scope of my talk, but you can take things like Agile, continuous delivery, and, and make them very secure, actually very inexpensively, but you just have to, to educate the developers on what they need to do and why. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. So in, in terms of, you mentioned about the, the breach fatigue, and, and I've seen that as well, where it seems that, uh, especially a few years ago, we heard about Target, we heard about you know some others, and and that was the big news, but now they're still there, we hear them, certainly in the security community, we see a, a lot of those, but uh, I see the same, that it seems like people are more and more numb to it. How? What are some things that you talked about also in your in your talk about helping people still be aware of, of these things? Well, to give you a little a little story, several years ago, I was overseeing a very large software project with, with the mother load of sensitive data. You know, the full data exfiltration would have been in the hundreds of millions of dollars of fines and penalties. And when I got there, everything was kind of done. I figured out the schedule. It was funded. It was staffed. It was, you know, there was a project plan. There's a project manager. I thought this is too good to be true. And I'm looking over the project plan, and there's no security testing. None whatsoever for what would have been a $100 million exfiltration uh, data breach. And so I put five weeks of security testing there, which pushed the due date. And I get this call from the project management office yelling into the phone saying, who do you think you are requiring security testing? And I started to respond, well, I'm, I'm the CISO. Please leave your badge at the desk and go home. And it occurred to me, maybe she really doesn't know what I'm talking about. So I said, what do you think security testing is? And she said, well, you know, you know, it's, um, you know. <laughs> and, and she really didn't know. So I, I brought her to my office. I explained, I walked it through her. So, you, know, I, I'm, you can tell I'm very passionate about security testing. And by the time we were done talking, she became my biggest ally. So by just educating her, if I'd played bully, policeman, played the FUD card, I probably wouldn't have gotten anywhere. So long story short, we did the security testing, and sure enough, the pen testers were able to exfil some of the data. Worst, worst possible case scenario. So in the project plan, I added time for the developers to fix it. Now, the same lady who's my biggest ally calls me up and says, who do you think you are? We never said would fix it. We just said would test it. And again, it was like, leave your badge with disk. And I said, well, why don't you come to my office? And I brought the pen testers out. I, I brought them out and said, you're on your best behavior, but you need to, you need to show her what you did. And I showed her and it, it very appropriately freaked her out. And she, she worked for a company that had contracts all over the place. And before I knew it, this one incident had been prevented. They were come, other companies were coming to us saying, are we going with a SQL injection? And by this one little demonstration, it had this cascading effect where people worried about SQL injection, which, you know, it's SQL injections, one vulnerability out of hundreds. 
So what I did is the next time there was a, something on the, a breach in the paper, I had a little party. Well, I had a brown bag lunch where I, I, I brought the pen testers out, made them put on clean shirts, and said, demonstrate this. And what happened is instead of me playing the Fred Cog and somebody being a policeman, I became the guy that people would come to and say, are we vulnerable to this? And that was several years ago. And that's what kind of kicked me off on these demos, where if it's something you've heard of, something you're aware of, if I can demonstrate it to you and show you how you may be vulnerable and, and a very inexpensive way to fix it, you're very likely to fix it. If I come to you and say you have to fix that or else, they probably won't. And if I come to them and say you're going to be breached no matter what without explanation, they probably won't fix it. Okay, great. Yeah, I like that partnership approach that you're describing here. And I think that's the evolution of security over time. We've gone from, so it used to be all about FUD. Mm-hmm. We're just going to, we're just going to try to scare you into believing that you need to do that. But that doesn't work because schedules are moving so fast these days. No, that nobody, they're not afraid of that. And so I think you've, you've hit on something here from exposing them and opening their eyes is really a good way for, for them to become the advocate. And that, that project or program manager from that point forward probably became a big security advocate for anything that you were doing because she understood both the cause and the effect mm-hmm. and the overall risk. And I think risk is so hard for people to really understand. Very much so. People at this conference that are here, <laughs> most people here could give you a really good definition of risk. Mm-hmm. The problem is this is the echo chamber. Yeah. We're talking to all our friends here. It's it's the, the people that are developing code are at their desk somewhere on earth typing away right now. They're not here learning about these lessons. So, so what do you think about reaching out and, and what are your, what, what are your thoughts on how you get to the rest of the, the bigger community? You know, we, we've seen in the last few years, we've seen DevOps absolutely explode because DevOps is developer friendly. DevOps was invented by developers for developers. Before that, we had the 1970s waterfall model where the developers, they, they loved running code, but they hated this, these constraints. With DevOps, the developers figure out how long it will take, how they'll do it, and we empower them. And I really think the next move for security in this software life cycle is to have developers figure it out. One of the most impactful things I've done is I had a development team that was really cared, really wanted to, but had no security training whatsoever. And they were all very proud people. You could, you could go to them and, and say, you suck at security, and I would have just crushed them. So instead, what I did is I gave them all the OS cheat sheets, and I gave them all a license of a dynamic scanner. And I said, I want you to do your unit testing. Before you, before you check in your code, you scan it and make sure it'll pass. That way, when it comes to me in the test phase, we know it will pass and no one gets embarrassed. Because what usually happens is they write code, they think they're done, it goes to QA, security finds it, security says, ha ha, you know what you're doing, go back and fix it, schedule's delayed, they're mad at you, we're mad at them, and it crashes. If you have them do it during the unit testing and say, don't check it in until we know it passes security, by the time it hits test phase, my job is easy. I'm just validating their unit tests. They get to be proud because they have no findings and the schedules don't slip. So I, I think with security needs to look at the evolution of DevOps and figure out how we can, how we can fit into that where we can empower developers to figure out how to do security in the way that works for them. You know, it, Software development's not a one-size-fits-all shop. There's still shops that have annual release cycles where they release one release a year. Then you've got places like um, you know, Twitter that are announcing hourly releases. Now, if you go to, to a place like Twitter with an hour release, hourly release, 
and say, you need to spend two and a half days doing a software test, it's, it's not going to work. <laughs> so we have to look at the developers, how, they, how do they develop code, and we have to figure out how security fits into that. We have to be flexible. Okay, great. So one uh, thing I was thinking about there, let's say uh, this is some of the things that you've done and how it's been really helpful and successful for you to be able to communicate and, and build that partnership uh, with developers and QA and other people in the organization. Uh, in looking for, let's say, for example, breach data or breach information, there's a lot of stories out there, media that uh, overinflates things. How do you uh, separate the hype from the actual, what you really want to know and need to know from the breach and even how it's done? How are you finding that in particular? That's a, that's a great, so the, the, um, when I got into cybersecurity, you know, hackers were, were villainized. In fact, I was a pen tester. My first ISC squared meeting a long, long time ago, I was told to not mention the fact I had pen testing skills because it was frowned upon. You know, nowadays we've got Dave Kennedy on the ISC squared board. So the, the ability to do offensive security is now being embraced. But along with that, the media is now glorifying the attacks. So we went from don't talk about the attacks, having them be very, very FUD like. So now the attacks are being kind of glamorized. I mean, we have a TV show we have a TV that's show. focused on it, Mr. Robot. On Mr. Robot. Yeah, right. So when you look at the breaches, there's two things happening. One, there's not a lot, sometimes there's not a lot of information because the company that was a target doesn't want to be sued, which is fair enough. And the time is very sensationalized, very glamorized. And what you have to do is you have when you what I encourage people to do is when they read about these, read for what the control failures were. You talked about the target breach. You know, it, what we know from the newspapers was it was a third party that was compromised. That third party had access to the data center. They used access to the data center to put in some memory scraping software. That's what the newspaper said. So instead of saying, I'm not going to use my credit card at Target anymore or Home Depot anymore, wherever it was, um, read that for what happened and think about your organization. You know, what, what contracts do you have in place with your vendors? How is there a third party access being managed? If someone were to get in your data center, would you know if if your if your software data center was modified? How would you know? So when you read these breaches, don't get caught up in the hype, but but look at it in terms of how what what do we have that's similar? Because most organizations now have third parties. Most of them have off-premise data centers or, or cloud services. So you can look at these things and, and think to yourself, what does this mean for me, and how can I educate my people? So if if you could go if you had a lot of third-party contracts. And as a security manager, you were worried that we weren't paying enough attention to those. You could then use a, one of those breaches to say they had a third party, you know, third party access. It didn't appear to be cut off in a high manner. How often, you know, what's, and get some metrics. We term it, you know, we, we end a contract with third party. It's on average taking us six days to, to turn off that access. Come up with some metrics that match the breach and present those metrics to your executive staff. And you'll get a lot farther than playing the FUD card saying, hey, they were breached, we could be breached too. You know, it, it, I say it a lot, but, but when, I'm doing, when I'm doing security management, you know, it's do more math. Because the more metrics you can provide, the less FUD you can provide, the more actual responses they'll get. Great. Do you have a uh, particular source of uh, places that you find more detailed information about breaches and uh, one over another? Do you have any recommendations? You know, honestly, it, it, it went. My evolution was from the newspaper to slash dot, now to Twitter. I mean, Twitter has become okay. my biggest news source. And if you, there's certain people you can, you know, news sources you can follow that tend to be a little more focused. 
Um, you know, even even Brian Krebs. You know, Brian Krebs. Is, there's a T-shirt uh, out there that says Brian Krebs is my IDS. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and if there's some truth to that. And that, you know, people like Brian Krebs or, or, or Art Technica will have some very detailed information. Right. Okay. So if I was to put on my developer hat. And let's pretend, so one of the groups we're trying to reach with this podcast is developers, testers that are not security people. So how would you, how would you recommend, or let's pretend I'm the developer here that's, that knows really very little about security. How would you approach me from a data breach just to, uh, just to teach me or to uh, help me to understand why I even need to care about it? So when I work with developers, you, I don't put on my, my security manager hat. I, I, I just simply put on where, you know, we're all in the same organization. If we're breached, you know, if your software is breached, we're all breached. I don't, I don't put the FUD code. I simply talk about secure coding because it, developers really do care about secure coding. More often than not, they're not taught. One of the things I do is I provide um, secure coding. I'll teach it myself. I'm not, not qualified, but I, I, there's vendors I use. There's free resources I use. OWASP is a big one where, um, I do. The other really powerful tool is teach developers to pen test. You know, give them. You know, OWASP has their their broken web app. It, it's it's wonderful. Uh, the Danvoir web app it has clues. It has hints. It has um, code snippets. Let them play with that. They can bring it up in a VM. And the more you let developers see how a vulnerable site is hacked, the more they'll start thinking. You know, I code that way. You know, to go back to our SQL injection talk, you know, they'll go, oh, you concatenate user input into a SQL query. That leaves a SQL injection. Oh, it says here to parameterize my query. And it's about five extra lines of code, which, which isn't a lot. And they can even go back to their program, program management office and say, we need to add an extra day because we need to parameterize our queries. It's a, it's a high level example. But the more you can educate them, the more you can educate developers, the better they'll do. Because in my experience, developers really want this to code securely. It's really a lack of resources to train them, and it's a lack of time in the schedule. But I've heard both those things more times than I can count. I really do want to code security securely, but I don't have the time for it, which is a horrible excuse because the program management office wants them to code securely just as much as they do, and the two aren't talking. So I can I can play the the bridge and go to the program management office and be the bad guy and say, you need to add more time for this. The other thing is, is training. You know, developers, um, when, you, when, you, when you learn to code in school, you often don't learn to code securely. I'm not sure why that it's getting better. The kids, Yeah, are, I think it's changing now, but the, it's, yeah, we're the, still not there. The kids I see coming out of school are doing a much better job than they were five, ten years ago. So the universities are getting better at it, but we're still not perfect. There's a, There seems to be a chasm between the young people learning to code securely and the young people learning to hack. If they could all get together, it would be in better shape. Because I see a lot of hackers coming out of universities and a lot of coders, and there's there's not a lot of overlap. All right. So going back to talking to the developer and the QA, so let's say the QA. I've spoken to some QA people, and I ask them, well, what are you doing for security testing? And they say, well, what's that? Yes. Um, so that's a, a passion of yours as well. Tell me what you would tell to a, a QA person who's not familiar with security, but definitely interested in testing. Yeah, believe it or not, that becomes political because the question of where security testing should be organizationally, especially with, with the big budgets coming out for security now, is a, is a political hot potato. Um, QA wants it there because they want the budget. 
security often wants it in security, and there's pros and cons to both. You know, there's um, having security do it. You've got security SMEs doing it. They're trained. They, and, you know, with with, with security testing, it, it's very holistic. You know, it's um, it, pretty much anyone can run a scanner. It doesn't take much, but it, you have to really. You, it takes some training and skill to run it well, and there, there's. No one more dangerous than someone running a scanner who doesn't know what they're doing because they'll, they'll miss things, they'll do it wrong. Um, so, so with Q, I, I think there's a hybrid approach. I think, I think QA needs to manage it, manage the results, um, but they need, they need cybersecurity SMEs involved. Um, you know, I'll give you an example of let's say you have a site like Amazon.com. You could run a scanner, you could, you could take any scanner without any credentials and then just have it crawl Amazon.com and scan it. And but you're gonna miss logged in users, you're gonna miss the shopping cart, you're gonna miss the payment process, you're gonna miss the login. The mo- probably the most critical parts of the application will be missing. Then you can have someone else who can run a credentials who maybe won't think about shopping cart checkout. You know, and ultimately there's and some you know sites will be an admin context with all an admin. So if you don't have someone who understands the again the developers if you don't, if you're running the scanner and don't talk to the developers and the architects, you're going to miss some of these important contexts. So, while the program officer QA may manage the, the software security testing schedule, you need to involve the developers and, and, and or architects. You need to involve security. It, it has to be the systemic, holistic approach. You, you can't just tower it off and, and it's, I call it checkbox testing. You know, there's a requirement to do testing. Check, we did it. Right. It, it has to be done with some passion. Okay, so you need some information. I mean, that's what that's key is not just running a tool, as you said, and see the results, but actually understanding more about what the application is, how it works, and that you get from a developer to understand exactly. that information needed to, to do thorough and understandable testing. Exactly. Okay, very good. All right, so um, tell me about, uh, we talked about Breach, we talked about uh, the different ways of working with developers and QA, what about business? How would you uh, help a business as, as they're starting to think about these things and they have developers and they have QA, other people in their staff, how would a business start thinking about, you know, better about security and, and these kinds of things we've talked about, breaches well, and so forth? We forget it frequently, but the number one rule of security is it has to meet the needs of the business. That's, the, that's why we're here. That's why we're funded. So... And we forget that a lot. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of an oversimplified example, but I use it a lot, where if you write some software and you release it, you have a potential risk of a million dollars in penalties. Okay, Nobody wants that. But let's say there's a guaranteed $100 million in profit. And if you don't release it, you won't get that $100 million. So essentially, by releasing it, you're getting $99 million. From a cybersecurity context, we don't like that. We don't. No one likes releasing vulnerabilities. But if you're the CEO of the company, getting $99 million in profit versus zero is probably a really good business decision. You know, and, you know this is a very oversimplified example. No one gets hurt. No one dies. You know, it's 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 overly simplified. But when you work with when you're in cybersecurity with the business, you have to be prepared for the business to have the final say. I can go and, and if I, as a security manager, go and say, you can't release that software, I'm doing that without the context of what the $99 million in profit would be. As a security manager, my job is to say, you've got this risk, you know, you've got this vulnerability, 
that vulnerability, you know, when, when our other other organizations similar to ours released it, penalties have come out to about a million dollars. Here's the context. Here's what happened. My job is to explain the vulnerability, explain the impact, um, provide some examples, and, and hopefully, if I'm good at my job, provide here's what the mitigation would be and here's how much the mitigation would cost. So my job as security manager is to explain the context, the risk, potential mitigation. It's a business's job to decide to go forward or not. And I see a lot of my peers try to go in and tell the business what they can and can't release. And it's our job is to meet the needs of the business, not to tell the business what to do. So when I, when I approach the business, it's I usually approach the business as a trusted advisor. And you know, the challenge there is they don't usually trust you at first. Right. Um, I've, done secu- I've been hired to do security reviews. I had one where I went in and I, I got in the call a little bit early. And usually when I show up, people get a little bit of, before they know, they get a little bit intimidated. So to put them at ease, I said, do you know what to expect? And it turns out they didn't who I was, and the response from developers was, yes, don't tell the security guy anything. <laughs> and at that point, I knew that the, my challenge there wasn't doing security. My challenge was, how do I gain the trust of the developers? So I had to completely shift my strategy and talk about who I was, my philosophy, what would happen if I found something, how to help them save face. And it, it adds some time, but by the time I was done, they were being very candid with me. We found things. We got fixed. Um, no one was thrown under the bus. I didn't go to management saying, you're so lucky you hired me because I found all these problems. I was able to go to management and say, you know, here's your five-week plan for bulletproof software. So it, it's that subtle shift that buys the credibility when you work with developers. And building that trust. I mean, that's that's really a, a big part of it. And it comes back to, uh, we've talked on this uh, podcast about the uh, the importance of relationship, about building, and we talked about partnership earlier, uh, about building that trust relationship with developers and, and staff and, and business as well, so that uh, as security people, we're, we're there to help. We're there to, to um, you know, build better products, more secure products. We can't just say, just do it. <laughs> we've we've got to be able to to build the trust and and uh, and help them to know how to do it. And so I got another question. That so so what do you see as the evolution of the business response to that? Because you described this balancing of the one million penalties and ninety nine million in profit, and that's an easy business decision. But that's not what I don't I don't think that's what you want that organization to do five years from now. Five years from now, you want some. You want them to have done, taken some steps to understand and say, "We're going to get the ninety-nine million. We're going to get the hundred million profit, and we're going to have a secure solution because that's what our customers need." So, what do you think about that? So, good. thanks for catching that. Always, always, always have a remediation plan. And they may choose to do it, not do it, change the timelines, change who does it. But I will never, I will never, ever, ever go to an executive and say, "You've got this problem." I'll always say, "You've got this problem." Here's how to fix it. Here's a timeline. In my experience, here's what it will cost. And, and more importantly, here's how to do it better, faster, cheaper. And I'm not being paid to tell them they suck. I'm being paid to tell them how to fix it in a way that's better, faster, cheaper than they get by Googling it. Because otherwise, I'd just Google it, not hire me. So that's your perspective is, uh, again, not just telling, but how do you do it? You, you have to provide. I mean, we see it a lot in cybersecurity where Cybersecurity practitioners are, are saying no. You know, we, there's a lot of slang for us. We're the preventers of forward progress. We're the obstructionists. 
or the yeah. people that take the fun out of the room. They take the fun out of right. and <laughs> they don't know us for real, though. We that's actually right. we actually deserve that. I mean, we we've, we've got a long history of, of saying no. I mean, that's true. Those those terms, while I don't like them as a profession, we've probably earned them. It's it's because we go and we say no. What we need to do is we need to say not yes or no, but if you do it, here's what'll probably happen based on these facts. Here's how to fix it based on on these facts. And here's some suggestions on ways to do it in a, that, that meets your business needs. Because, he, like I said, each business process is unique. So you have to understand the business processes and tell them, you know, here's what it is. Or if you, if, you know, um, I'm a big fan of, um, I'm a cavalry. They're, they're um, identifying vulnerabilities in medical devices and cars. So a vulnerability in a medical device is very different than the fact someone can change the background on your web page. You know, they're, they're very different impacts. So, um, well, ethically, I, I'm very concerned about one. As a professional, I, I would kick the, the business is often kick that to the bean counters. My job would be to say, here are the vulnerabilities. Here's the likelihood to be exploited. If it was exploited, pe- people would die. You know, you, you, you can punctuate your delivery and, and it really um, bring about past examples. But ultimately, as passionately as I would feel about that, I have I have no ultimate say over how the business does it. I, I, at that point, I, I'm I'm not the CEO. So you really it's the CEO's ultimate decision, and your job is to craft your argument as best you can. And and to your point, tell them how to fix it or refer them to someone who can. Yeah. yeah, and in this day and age, it's not like it used to be where boardrooms are just ignoring security or having no idea what cybersecurity is. The average board gets a cybersecurity briefing at every time they meet. There's something being discussed from that perspective. So I think that we're, we're in a better place now because we're not going to, we're not, not going to experience those major trade-offs because the board understands the risk of if we just ignore this thing, we're, we're potentially going to be the next target, the next Home Depot, the next uh, big breach that's happened. So I think we're making progress there and I think that'll help to better prepared businesses to make the right decision because they're going to have the pressure from above saying, you're not going to put me on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Right. It's not going to happen. We're not buried in IT anymore. In the early days, we were all buried in IT and had no access to the top. Yeah, now they're pulling everybody up. They're saying, come on. Like, no, I don't want to talk to the board. Yeah. No, come, please. You must speak about cybersecurity. Okay. Well, you know, in, uh, in closing, I was wondering if you could give us a, uh, just a few minutes uh, call to action. What's what do we need to do now that we've noted a few things here? What do we need to do today? We, we need to really start educating ourselves. It's not about fun. It's about awareness. So you know, um, give your developers time to learn. You know, send, them, send them to a, a security training. Give them the OWASP cheat sheets. Add a day into your project plan for developers to, to do some, you know, make a sprint that says you're going to read the OWASP cheat sheet. Um, it's it's very inexpensive and it, it goes a long way. So the call to action would be: we're giving a lot of lip service to security, but we don't have the tools. We all care about it, but we're not giving the developers the time and tools to take action. So if I believe we all care about it, if you're agile, add some sprints. They're going to read the cheat sheets. You know, if, uh, give them a few days off to go to an OWASP training. Uh, give them a few days off to watch Security Tube. You know, there's the stuff online is is free. Uh, have them download um, OWASP Vulnerable Web App and play with it. It's 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 a huge learning experience. So, 
put your money where your mouth is, train your developers, empower your developers, and be a lot more secure. And you mentioned security tube there. You can get almost any conference talk, especially from the B-sides, the, the more open, the OWASP-style mm-hmm. events that are happening. Those are all going to be posted up there. And so there's so much of information available now. And I'll second your, your idea here of, of give people time to actually do it because there's so many resources out there. They just need, they need some time to go into them. You need to, 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 to balance that against customer pressure of getting that next sprint out the door. Can you imagine if every day they had a, a half hour sprint to watch security tube? Yeah. Let them pick what's most impactful to them, or most important to them. Wow. Good advice. Good words. Well, Mike, thank you. I appreciate you you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. Our intro music is 8-Bit Kung Fu by Born and TJ, and the outro is Southern Delight by Stefan Kartenberg. You can find us on Twitter at AppSecPodcast or on the web at www.appsecpodcast.org.